start uh, a, new, uh, a new book. As, as most of you know, that's what we do in this class. We go through books of the Bible. We've been doing that pretty much for the last 10 years. And today we're going to start one uh, that I've wanted to do a long, for a long time, but I've been very hesitant because it's not easy to read and it's not easy to teach. And so um, I've, I've just picked, picked easier fruit, uh, so to speak. Uh, so today we're just going to start with an introduction to Job. Um, one of the reasons I, I, I've been wanting to teach Job, as I said, Job talks about the problem of suffering. And whether you're an atheist and you can't come to God because you can't understand why a good God would ever allow the suffering you see in this world, or whether you're uh, somebody that's been in church and, and suffering in your life drove you away from Christ, uh, I see that all the time. And, and if, if you were here last week, that had a big effect on my life as well. So it's just, it's just a book that I've gone to again and again and again, wanted to teach it for a long time, but just been very hesitant to. But then I finally decided to, to do it. So this morning we're going to start uh, just with an introduction. We'll only read one verse. So if you got your Bible and you want to follow at least along with that one verse, you can. And we'll come and start in more detail next week. But today we just want to get to an introduction. Job 1.1 says this, There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and one who turned away from evil. Now, it really is a sad thing to me that the majority of Christians have no idea how great a book Job is. Now, we all know it's in the Bible, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, so that in itself makes it, makes it great. But if you took Job out of the Bible... Just take it out of the Bible and put it into a book all by itself as a work of literature or as a work of philosophy. It is, it is unparalleled. Uh, it has consistently been rated as one of the greatest books in literature. Again, take it out of the Bible. The, the Guardian newspaper, the, one of the oldest newspapers over in England in 2002, listed Job among one of its 100 greatest books ever written. I, I, I used this quote last week, Victor Hugo, the author of The Hunchback of Notre Dame and Les Miserables. He said, tomorrow if all literature was destroyed and it was left to me to save one book, he said, I'd save Job. Now that, should, that probably surprises a lot of people. But he says, if I'd save one book, it would, be, it would be Job. Daniel Webster, the American statesman, said this, the book of Job taken as a mere work of literary genius, is one of the most wonderful productions of any age or of any language. Alfred Lord Tennyson, the British poet, said this, It is the greatest poem ever written, whether of ancient or modern literature. Martin Luther said this, It is more magnificent and sublime than any other book of Scripture. Now think about that. More than Romans, more than Genesis, more than... Any other book in the Bible, he said, it is, it is a magnificent uh, work. Now, so it is a great book, and I don't think a lot of Christians and, and people in church really realize that. So I want to talk this morning about a few uh, specifics. First of all, who wrote Job? Who is the author? Well, the fact is, we don't know. It is by far the oldest book in the Bible, uh, it was written probably, most people think Genesis is the, first, is the oldest book because it's the first book. But historically, Job is much older 
than Genesis, probably 500, 600, maybe up to 1,000 years older than Genesis. That's how this, this book is, is, is the oldest book in the Bible. But we don't know who wrote it. If you go out and you read commentaries, there's a lot of speculation. Some people say, well, Job himself wrote it. Some people say, well, maybe Moses uh, wrote it. And there's a lot of different speculation. But the fact is, we don't know. The book itself never says who wrote it. And so any, any, anything we come up with would just be, be guesswork because in the end we just don't know. Where do these events take place? We, we saw in, in uh, verse 1, it says, There was a man by the name of Joe who lived in a land called Uz, U-Z. Uh, well, the fact is we don't know that either. We don't really know where this land uh, was. It's believed to be in the kingdom of Edom. Um, and we get that from Lamentations 4.21. Lamentations 4.21 says this, Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. So Uz, or Edom, is a, is a kingdom that's basically uh, southeast of the Dead Sea or southeast of Jerusalem. It would be modern-day Jordan or modern-day Saudi Arabia in that area right there. So this is more than likely... Where, this, where these events take place. But again, if we go back in history, we just don't know for certain sure. We can't pinpoint it exactly, but that's about as close as we can get. Now, we don't know who wrote it. We don't know really where the events took place. Do we know when it happened? Well, this is a little bit easier. There are some hints in the story that allow us to historically determine the, uh, the, the time frame of it. It almost certainly occurred during the period of the patriarchs. And when I'm talking about patriarchs, I'm talking about somewhere between Noah and Jacob. Okay, Not in the time of Moses or later than that, but somewhere Abraham, Isaac, somewhere in that time frame right there. Now, we can tell this by several facts that are given to us in the story. For example, one of the things we'll begin to see next week is Job's lifestyle. Um, It's described very much like that of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They are keepers of flocks and herds. That's that's how they survive. That's how they uh, measure their, their wealth. In fact, when it talks about how prosperous a man Job is, it doesn't say he has this much money. Because back in that day and age, there was no currency. There was no, uh, they didn't really trade in gold and silver. How, much, how wealthy you were was basically dictated by how many animals you had, how many sheep, how many cows, how many camels, how many donkeys, those kind of things. That, that reflected how prosperous you were. And so that's one of the things that will tell us about Job. In fact, it will go down and tell us exactly how many animals he had. It tells us he had a lot of servants because obviously you had to have a lot of servants to take care of those many animals, very much like the patriarchs. Also in that day, how many children you had represented how blessed you were. In fact, when they talked about a man, they would always talk about how many children he had because that reflected whether he was a blessed man or not, and it does exactly that with with Job. Another thing in Job, as you read through it, there is no mention at all of Israel. Okay? There's no mention, reference to the Israelites. There's no mention of the sacrificial system. There's no mention of a temple or a tabernacle. There's no mention of a priesthood. There's no mention of kings or judges or anything like that. 
So we can tell this had to happen before Israel uh, or before the priesthood or any of that giving of the law uh, came into existence. In fact, in the book, God speaks directly to Job just like he did with Abraham, just like he did with Noah, just like he did with Isaac. Okay? He also acts as the high priest of his family. He's the one offering sacrifices. Again, this is just like Noah, Abraham, Isaac. So we can pretty much tell just from that lifestyle that these events occurred pretty much in the same time frame as those other men. Again, there's no uh, 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 reference to the temple. Um, and and other thing is, we're not told Job's tribe. By the way, once you get to Moses and you've got the 12 tribes of Israel, anytime they mention somebody like David, they'll say David of the tribe of Judah. They always, they always reference your... There's none of that in Job. Okay, so this had to happen before the children of Israel and Moses and all of that sort of stuff. Now, that's all pretty good evidence, but there's another piece of evidence that really kind of uh, really focuses it for us, and that is Job's age. When the story opens, Job is already, uh, he's already, already been married for quite a while. He's got ten children already when the story opens. He's already got a lot of wealth. He's got a lot of notoriety. Now, let's just say, it doesn't tell us how old he is when the story opens, but let, let's just say he got married when he was 20, and he had a child every two years. And he's got 10 children by this point. So let's just say he's 40. That would probably be a minimum. More than likely, he's upwards of, of 60, 70, or 80. But let's just say he's 40 years old when the story opens. As I said, he's already got 10 children. When the story ends, the Bible tells us he goes on to live another 140 years. So at a minimum, Job probably would have died around 180 at a minimum. And, he, and, and more than likely, it was probably 200, 210, somewhere in there. So he lived to be a very old man. Now, those type of ages are common in the ages of, in the day of the patriarchs, right? If you, if you go back and look, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they all lived somewhere between 150 to 180 years old. But by the time you get to David, King David, you, you hardly ever hear of men living over 70 becomes a very rare for men to live over, over 70. Moses lived to be 120, but he or anybody else around him never went past that. That was, that was considered the very maximum. And by the way, we still see that today, right? Every once in a while, you'll find somebody who lives 110, 115, 120, but that's, that's the very top end. You, you never, never hear of anybody going over that, but yet Job did, okay? Which tells us, that his, he would probably fit right back in there in that patriarchal age with like Abraham and Isaac, Jacob, and, and all of those men before the giving of the law of Moses. Now, some people say, well, can you get more specific? Well, you, you can speculate a little bit. I'll give you a couple of examples. In Genesis ten twenty nine, where it's listing the genealogy of Noah, it says this, uh, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab, all these were the sons of Joktan, the sons of Shem. So Shem was the son of Noah. So this guy named Jobab, which some people believe is Job. But again, the only reason they have to believe that is just because his name sounds similar. 
But that would make him the, uh, the great-grandson of Noah, if, if, if that's the case. In Job 2.11, it says this. Now, when Job's three friends, and it calls one of them Bildad the Shuite. Well, Shua was a son of Abraham through a lady named Keturah. You remember Abraham was married to Sarah. Sarah died. Well, Abraham remarried a, a woman named Keturah, and he had some sons. And one of them was a, a guy by the name of Shua. And some people believe the Shuites were descendants of this guy. Well, if that's the case, then that would put Noah somewhere, um, uh, you know, somewhere after Abraham, probably a contemporary of, jo- of, of Jacob or something like that. So again, we can't be super specific about it, but we're pretty sure that he would have been a contemporary of, say, Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, right? He would have lived somewhere right around the same time. Now, this is, this is interesting to me because... You know, we tend, when you read Genesis, we just came out of Genesis, and when you get to chapter 12 of Genesis, you start to focus on Abraham, right? Because it's all about Abraham and his family and Isaac and then Jacob and then 12 sons of, Israel, of, of Jacob, right? Or the 12 tribes of Israel. You forget, if you're not careful, that God is working in other places as well, right? Does that make sense? See, we focus on Abraham and Isaac and Jacob because that's what Genesis focused on. But that doesn't mean that there aren't other men in other places in the world that God is using as well. It reminds me of uh, Romans 11, 2 through 5. There's a, there's a place in there where Paul says this, Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. Elijah, if you'll remember, he had, he had prophesied against the king and... Um, uh, Jezebel, the queen, and they decide they're going to kill him. And so one day he's feeling sorry for himself. He says, Lord, I'm, I'm the only one left, right? I, I'm the only one. And of course, God replies to him and says this, No, I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And, and Paul goes on to say, Suits, There's always a remnant saved by grace, chosen by grace. So the fact is we can, and I, I think this is important because we can sit here we come in here in Wakala County and we come in week after week and we sit in this church and we know all these people and everything and we forget that God's got people in Russia and God's got people in China and God's got people in India and God's got people in Miami and New York and we forget that. But, but God's always got people, right? So it wasn't over here is Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and they're going through all this stuff. But then over here... In this kingdom of Edom, in this land of us, is this guy named Job. And he is a, the Bible says there's nobody like him on the earth. He is unique. And we'll see that uh, next week. Now, let's talk a little bit about poetry, which is definitely not one of my favorite subjects. The book of Job is an incredible book. There are, it is full of pretty much, you, you think of any type of literature that's found in the, in the uh, Old Testament... It's got it's got riddles, it's got poems, it's got hymns, it's got lamentations. There's even science. I, remember, I mentioned to y'all a, a few times back when I, I led the youth group here, I, I put together a, uh, a thing called the Amazing Bible. And, and the Bible really is this amazing book. And, and one of the things that the Bible talks about is science. You know, people ridicule the Bible sometimes and, and say, well, the Bible you know, doesn't know anything about modern science. That's baloney. That is absolute baloney. I'll give you a couple things you're going to find in Job. In 1925, 
the astronomer Edwin, Edwin Hubble. Everybody knows the Hubble telescope, which is named after him. In 1925, he discovered that the universe is expanding like a balloon. It's, it, and the further away you get from uh, the, out in the, in the universe, the faster it's expanding. I mean, it's moving, getting bigger. That was in 1925. Job 9.8 says this, Who alone stretches out the heavens? He stretches out. I mean, Job knew that 3,500 years ago. Uh, Job 26.7 says this, He stretches out the north over empty space, and he hangs the earth on nothing. Now, you may think, well, that's, what's, what's the big deal about that? Did you know that up till 1887, that scientists didn't believe there was any such thing as nothing? That they see, we know here on Earth that this this is air. This is filled with air, right? But they thought out in space where there's nothing that there that, that can't be. So there has to be something there. So they proposed that it was filled with ether, this gas called ether. That every piece of of empty space out there is filled with ether. But in 1887, they finally proved no. It literally is nothing. There's nothing there. There's no ether, there's no air, there's, no, there's nothing. Well, Job said that 3,500 years ago. He hangs the earth on nothing. Job 28, 25 says, He imparted weight to the wind. Listen, that wasn't proven until 300 years ago that air has mass, that wind and air actually weigh something. That was proven uh, 300 years ago. Job said it 3,500 years ago. You can go all through the Job 36, 27 to 28. He draws up the drops of water. They distill rain from the mist, which the clouds pour down. They drip upon man. That's the hydrologic cycle. That's condensation, evaporation. This is Job, this farmer living out in the middle of nowhere. And 3,500 years ago, he, he literally describes the hydrologic cycle. Job 38.16, have you entered into the springs of the sea? How did, did you know there are springs in the sea? There are thermal springs out there in the deepest parts of the ocean. How did he know that? He lived out in the desert. It's an amazing, amazing book. It's full of all these just incredible facts. But above all, Job is a book of poetry. Okay? In fact, it's one of the poetical books. You know, we, we talk about Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and Lamentations. They are, they are all what are called books of poetry. Now, that may surprise some of you because your idea of poetry is roses are red, violets are blue. Right? That's, be honest with you, that's my idea of, of poetry. We, here in, the, in our country, when we talk about poetry, you expect things to rhyme. Right? Everything's supposed to rhyme. But that's not how Hebrew poetry works, okay? It doesn't, it's not about rhyming. Hebrew poetry is achieved not by rhyming words, but by repeating ideas, okay? Its technical term is something called parallelism. You say the same thing in a different way, okay? One of the great examples of this is Job 27.4. My lips will not speak falsehood, and my tongue will not utter deceit. That's Hebrew poetry. You say the same thing in a different way, okay? But in, but in really good Hebrew poetry, it's not enough just to say the same thing in a, in a different way. The words you use are important. In fact, it requires a balance between the two lines. The number of words and the number of syllables need to match. The, the, the accentuation needs to match. 
I mean, go back and read that and just see how that flows. My lips will not speak falsehood, and my tongue will not utter deceit. You see how that just flows and how it just... I mean, it doesn't sound the same if I said, well, my lips will not speak falsehood, and my tongue will not utter anything that I think that's to be untrue or I shouldn't have said. I mean, that doesn't work, right? The words have to balance. It has to be very... And and Job is the supreme example of Hebrew poetry. Whoever wrote it was a highly, highly artistic and a highly intelligent uh, person. Now... We'll get more into that as we go uh, into our study. Um, What language was it written in? Well, Job is written in Hebrew, but it varies greatly from the Hebrew that you see in the rest of the Old Testament. Now, that is to be expected. If if somebody wrote Hebrew here, and then 500 years later somebody wrote Genesis, let's say, you would expect that version of Hebrew and that version of Hebrew to be different. Right? Because language changes. One of the best examples of this, if, if you look at that, that's William Tyndale's 1500 and something. So that's about 500 years ago. That's 1 Corinthians 13, the, the love chapter. That's what it looked like. That's what English looked like 500 years ago. You, you can understand it. You can kind of get it. But everybody see that? You remember we went through the history of the English Bible? That was English language 500 years ago. It changes. So we would expect, if Job is the oldest book in the Bible, that there would be things in it that don't quite match the Hebrew of, say, Genesis or Exodus or, or, or one of the other books. And because the language would have changed fairly drastically. What makes this a little bit difficult is in Job, there are a lot of words and phrases that we don't understand, that, in fact, nobody understands. In fact, there's over a hundred words in Job that nobody has a clue what they mean. I'll give you an example, Job 6.6. 6. If you read your version, it says this, Can something tasteless be eaten without salt? And here's the poetry. Or is there any taste in the white of an egg? Now, that, that English, white of an egg, the actual word is R-Y-R-B-L-M-W-T. I, we don't know what that means, right? It's just, there's no vowels. I mean, how do you even pronounce something like that, right? So, so the translators read that, and they're like, I got no idea what that is. So what they do is they say, okay, well, what is something that's tasteless? What's something that has no taste without salt? Well, we know what it is. It's the white of an egg. And so they put white of an egg in there, and it gets the message across, doesn't it? But in fact, we have no idea what, what Job was referring to. He, it might have been, been eggs, but it could have been something completely different, right? So that's the point. We have no idea what it was, but we get the message, yes? So there's, it's not like it, 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 it... There's nothing in there that we can't figure out, but I just wanted you to know it's written in a very, very old form of, of Hebrew. A couple other things. Was Job a real man? I read a commentary the other day from a guy who says, oh, Job is just a made-up figure. It's just a moral story. Um, listen, we, we understand you can learn truth from a moral story. In fact, Jesus used parables all the time, didn't he? They were just stories that taught moral truth. That, that's okay. We understand that. 
But I believe that Job is a real man. He is a real historical figure. There's three reasons that I believe that. I'll give you all three of them. Number one, it's how the story opens. I'll give you a couple other examples in the Bible. In Judges 17.1, it says this, There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. Now, Micah was a real man. Nobody disputes that, and that's how the book of Judges introduces him. In, in 1 Samuel 1.1, 1, 1, it says this, There was a certain man of, of Ramathene Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah. Elkanah was a real man. He was the father of Samuel. He was Samuel's daddy. And then you get to Job, and, and what, look what it says. There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. In other words, it introduces it exactly like he's a real man. So am I supposed to look at those other two and say they're real men, and then that one? I mean, anybody that had read that book in the beginning would just assume that he was introducing a real man. Are you, are you with me? Okay, let me give you a couple others. Ezekiel 14, 12 through 14. This is the word of the prophet Ezekiel. And the word of the Lord came to me, said, Son of man, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against it and break its supply of bread and send famine upon it and cut it off from man and beast, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in that land, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord. So Ezekiel says, the, the, God gives him a message and says, if, you, if there's a land that's sinning against me and I send my judgment, I send famine and pestilence and sword against that land. He says, even if these three men lived in that land and he picks three righteous men... Noah, Daniel, and Job. He says they would save their lives, but they wouldn't save the life of the land. Now, are you telling me that God picks Noah, a real man, Daniel, a real man, and he just throws out Job made up? That makes no sense to me, does it to you? Looks to me like he's a, he's a real man. We see the same thing in the book of James, chapter 5. James says this, as an example of suffering of, of patience, of, of, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Now, the prophets are real people, right? I mean, we, he's talking about real men. And then he says this, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. So in all three of these cases, we see, we see him introduced as a real man. We see him mentioned with other real men by Ezekiel, and then we see him mentioned with other real men by the Apostle James. To me, to, to say he's not a real man, you've got to take a leap. There's a lot more evidence that he is than that he is, is not. I mean, in the end, can I say 100% sure? No, but I think the Bible's pretty clear that he is. Let's talk about the themes of the book. Uh, Bullinger says this, a commentator Ancient it is beyond all dispute. You have no idea how old this book is that we're going to study. Its lesson, therefore, is the oldest lesson we could have, and it takes us back to the very first lesson taught in the Bible itself. Mason said this, It is fascinating to think as we open this text that we are faced with the earliest of all written accounts of a human being's relationship with Yahweh, the one true God. So you're talking about the very earliest Bible book being Job and the very earliest lesson that it teaches, the very earliest 
uh, interface that we have between men and God wrestling with things. And what are they talking about? What are they wrestling with? Suffering. See, men have always had the same questions. I tell you, somebody, I, I mentioned this before. I think Eddie said this to me. He said, I used to read the Old Testament, and I thought, well, those guys were perfect. They were like, they had it all together. And then you really open the Old Testament and read it and study it. They weren't perfect at all. They had the same fears and the same worries and the same anxieties. And by the way, they were a lot... We, science tells us we're evolving. No, we're devolving. Those men were a lot smarter than we were. A lot more evolved than we were. A lot more... They, they had it... They, they, their mind, they lived longer. They, they weren't affected as much by sin in the fall. They were way above us in terms of intellect. And what were they struggling with? The exact same questions that we struggle with. If there's a good God, why would he allow suffering? Why does God allow suffering at all? Why, why is all this? They were wrestling with the same problems that, that we do. You see, the book of Job, when we open it, it's really, we're going to see a guy that suffers. But it's not really about his suffering, it's about his theology. You see, Job's got to deal with the fact that God doesn't act the way that he thought God should act. And I'm going to tell you, that is something that every one of us run up against in this life. I don't care how young you are, eventually you're going to hit this and God is not going to act the way you thought he was supposed to act. And you're going to have to deal with that. Every single one of us. That's why Job is so relevant today. That's Job's problem. He runs right up at God. I thought you were supposed to do this and you didn't. And, and, and we all are going to run up against that problem. You see, the moral question that's central to Job, we, all, we say it all the time, a man reaps what he sows, yes? And that's pretty much true all the time in life. But it does turn out sometime that in this life, that's not always true. Sometimes a man reaps what he doesn't sow. As I was studying this, two examples just popped into my mind. The first one is a guy by the name of Bertrand Russell. Y'all may not have heard of Bertrand Russell. He's a very famous atheist. All of his life he was an atheist. And he wasn't just an atheist. He preached atheism. He wrote about atheism. He, he, he taught atheism. I mean, he, he, everybody with me, he, he got it out there. Bertrand Russell died as a millionaire at the age of 98 years old. 98 years old and a millionaire. Are you telling me that in this life he reaped what he sowed? On the other hand, you may have heard about a guy by the name of Keith Green. Some of you younger people have never heard of Keith Green, but Keith Green was a Christian singer. I think he had four kids. His wife was pregnant with the fifth. One day he got on an airplane. Um, him and his, his two of his kids, uh, uh, three-year-old Josiah and two-year-old Bethany, he was 28. And that plane crashed and killed everybody on board. And, and, and Keith Green was the real deal. You go back and read about Keith Green. He was the real deal. He's dead at 28 along with two of his little toddler children. How is that fair? How is that fair that he dies at 28 and the atheist dies at 98? See, we all, every day we come up against things like, that's not right. That just doesn't seem fair, God. How are we going to... Job deals with exactly that issue right there. Because sometimes in this life, a person reaps what they don't sow. 
A person gets what they don't deserve. See, that's why this book of Job is so relevant for you and I today. Because it's, it deals with those questions that we are going to have to deal with. Now, I want to talk real quickly about something that's going to make this book difficult to, to read and, and difficult to teach, and that is truth and error. I asked somebody a question the other day. Does the Bible contain lies? And when I asked him the question, I saw him stop. Like, okay, is this a, is this a trick question, right? Um, see, the Bible's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And what that tells us is that it's going to give us an accurate historical account, right? That we can believe it's accurate in what it says. But that doesn't mean that everybody speaks the truth in the Bible, okay? In fact, the Bible records what people do and what they say. Sometimes the Bible records sinful acts, does it not? Okay, the sin of Adam, the crucifixion of Jesus, uh, Lot in a cave uh, committing incest with his two daughters. The Bible just says this is what happened, yes? Doesn't mean it was pleasing to God, doesn't mean it's right. See, the Bible expects us to know either in context or by other passages that what's going on right there is not right. It doesn't just come out and say, well, what Lot did was wrong or what Adam did. It just it expects you to know that, okay? In the same way, sometimes the Bible records error when people speak. I'll give you some examples. There's a lot of them in the Bible. The serpent tells Eve, hey, eat of this fruit. You're not going to die. Is that... That's a lie, right? Of course she's going to die. He knows that. But the Bible records that because that's, that's what the serpent said. The Jews, Jesus is casting out demons, and the Jews says it's only by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that he's able to do this. That's not true. That's a lie, right? But the Bible records it because they said it. Peter, when they came to Peter, they said, Do you know this man? He said, I don't know him. I don't know who that guy is. Well, that's a lie. See, we, now we know why he lied, don't we? Because he's scared. He was afraid they were going to kill him too. So he lied to get out of it. See, the Bible expects us to know in context, and because we study the rest of the Bible, we know that's not true. But the Bible just records what people say. Sometimes it's not, it's not true. Now, again, we are expected to know in context or in comparison to other passages... Like, I could turn back over in the gospel and say, well, there's Peter. He says, uh, where else can I go, Jesus? You alone have... Right? I can compare and say, you know, okay, he's lying because we get all that. Why do I bring this up? Because this is especially of concern in the book of Job. We're going to have chapter after chapter of Job's friends telling Job what they think. And sometimes what they speak is clearly in error. But other times, just like most sinners, sometimes things they say are true. Isn't that true of all of us? Sometimes we say what's true. Sometimes we say what's false. Well, they do too. Sometimes it's going to be clearly an error. Sometimes it's going to be true. And that presents us with a challenge because we got to figure it out. We have to determine when one of his friends says something, we have to determine, well, is that right? Does that line up with other passages in, in Scripture? Can, is that true? Even Job, by the way, when he gets to the end of the book, said, I should have kept my mouth shut. I I said things I didn't understand. I I said things of which I had no knowledge. Even Job says that. So we have to be very careful when we go through 
under, we have to actually figure out, okay, is what this guy's saying right or is what this guy's saying is wrong? And that presents a challenge to us. Normally, this is going to be a little bit different study because normally we go verse by verse, don't we? Or passage by passage. Job, we probably will not do that. Uh, it's an amazing book, as I've said, but its structure really presents a challenge to us. If you get to chapters 3 to 31, it's nothing but speeches. It's like a big debate, like four guys sitting around and they're just arguing with one another. And then these speeches are, are full of poetry, right? They're, they're, they're written in poetry, and poetry contains figurative languages, and then they repeat one another. And so you look at all that and you're kind of like, yikes, please don't go verse by verse, right? This will take us forever. Sometimes the specifics in this book um, can be a little bit difficult to understand. Some of this book is kind of dark. Uh, uh, you, know, uh, it, it, you know, man, do we, have to, do we have to study that? The story is extremely practical, though. The message in the story is extremely practical. So how do we approach this study? I don't think we'll go verse by verse. I don't think it fits the story fits, uh, to try and, and do that. I think what we'll do is we'll look at the main points. Uh, if we need to get in and analyze a particular thing, we will. But for the most part, we'll, we'll kind of hit the high points uh, of some of the, of the speeches and the chapters. I, I don't think this, this study will take... Genesis took us 19 months to go through 50 chapters. Job, I think, is around 40 or so. I don't think it's going to take us a year. I think it'll take us maybe three or four months. That's my guess. I think it'll be fairly short as, as studies uh, go. I want to close with this. i got about five minutes. Why should Christians study the book of Job? If, if most of you are honest, I won't ask you to, to raise your hand, but if most of you are honest, you've probably read the first two chapters of Job, and you might have read the last two or three where God shows up. And all that stuff in between, you just kind of skipped over. You know, just, okay, let's just get... You, you, in other words, you kind of got the, the uh, what do they call it in college, where you buy the little yellow book, the, the, uh, the cliff notes, right? You kind of got the cliff notes of Job. Yeah, I get it. Job suffers, all the friends accuse him, and then God shows up and makes everything okay, right? That's kind of how we, how, we, how we know or read, read Job. We, we tend to be kind of satisfied. Well, just give me the rough outline of the rough storyline. But I think it's important that we make a careful study of this book, and I've got several reasons why. Um, again, it's a, it's a really good question because it's a long book and a demanding book to, to read, and sometimes it's hard to understand, and sometimes it can be a little dark and, and distressing. But I want to give you seven reasons that we should study the book of Job. Number one, it forces us to think. That is a, <laughs> that is a lost art in our culture today. That is a lost art. We live in a culture of selfies and fads and who's offended who, and people just do not think about the deep things in life. We don't talk about the deep things in life. Job forces us to. Job forces us to see how is this universe really run. So that's the first thing, is it's going to force us to think. The second thing, it's going to force us to grapple or wrestle with the sovereignty of, of God. Again, it, it makes us, how, how is this universe really governed? Are there two forces, good and bad, light and dark? And these forces are always working against each other and fighting for control. Some people literally think 
if I, you know, you literally think there's a little red devil on this side of your shoulder and a little angel on this side of your shoulder, and they're always fighting and trying to, and Job just blows that out of the water and God steps up and says, no, I'm in, I'm in control. I'm in control. It, it forces us to wrestle with how this universe, how our world is actually governed. And, and Job will force us to think that. Number three, it forces us to reject false gospels. When I talk about false gospels, number one, I'm talking about the prosperity gospel that says it's God's will for you to be healthy and wealthy. Job blows that out of the water. Or what I call the therapeutic gospel, that it's God's will for you to be uh, fulfilled and happy. Well, Job blows that out of the water. There's, there, you won't find either one of those gospels in Job. Sometimes God just does things that you cannot put in a box. Sometimes God just does things that you... It's not a formula that if you do this and this, this is going to happen. It doesn't work that way. And Job forces us to, to face that. Number four, and I think this is one of the biggest ones, it helps us to identify with those who suffer. Galatians 6.2 says this, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Pastor Henry, I see him back here. He, he's introduced this J600. We, we're at 500 now. We want to get to 600, 700. What, what do we do? Do that, and we'll grow. Do that, you won't lose people. But that's dirty work, folks. That ain't clean. That ain't, oh, I did my hour on Sunday. Let me go home, and I ain't got to worry. No, it means getting in during the week and getting underneath other people's problems and getting dirty with them. That's, that's not easy. But it says, you do that, you fulfill the law of Christ. Love one another. By, by immersing us in suffering, Job helps us identify with others. Maybe we're not going through something right now, but it helps us identify with what people are going through. And I think that's a huge part of studying Job. Number five, it helps us to find hope in pain. In the end, Job is full of hope. And Job is full of comfort, and it all rests on the sovereignty of God. The one thing that does not change, it rests on that. And we will we'll expose that in the study. Number six, I, I, I didn't, couldn't figure out a way to, to, to put this, so I just said develop your emotional palate. As I said, Job is a book of poetry. And, it, and w as we go through it and we understand Hebrew poetry and how it works... It's going to help us read other books better like Psalms. I mean, if once we understand the, how the thing works, oh, that's pretty cool. Now it helps us when we get to Ecclesiastes and Lamentations and some of these other books that do the exact same thing. It's going to help us to be... That's one of the side effects, if you will, of studying through uh, Job. Number seven, and, I, and of course, I hope this is the main one. Studying through Job diligently and carefully helps us to encounter God. Job says this at the end of the book, I had heard reports about you, but now I've seen you with my own eyes. See, the fact is, I said it last week, we've all kind of built a picture of who we think God is. And I think Job had a picture in his mind. This is how God works. And all of a sudden, God shows up and says, no, I don't always do that, son. And Job says, now I see you for who you really are. I'm praying that we will all see God clearly in this study. Not who we think He is, but for who He uh, actually is. So we'll begin uh, next week with the first eight verses. Uh, and we've entitled this lesson, A Blameless Man.
a blameless man. Let's pray.